As they say, and we are glad to have each one of you present today for our Sunday morning worship period. <clears throat> if you're visiting with us, we're happy to have you, and come back anytime you can be here with us at McCoynesville. We're glad to have visitors always. The true story is told about a criminal court case called the State versus Bob Jones. When the trial began, the judge said, the defendant will rise as the charges are read. So Bob Jones' attorney stood up and he turned around and told Bob Jones to stand up, but he remained seated. So the judge then asked him, Mr. Jones, are you the defendant in this case? And Bob Jones said, no, sir, your honor, sir. I got me a lawyer to do the defending. I'm just the guy who done it. He didn't help his case much there, did he? Now, just like Mr. Jones in that little story had a lawyer to represent him before the judge and speak on his behalf, so too all of us need a representative to speak for and intercede for us before our judge. The sermon today is going to focus on God's promise of one who will intercede for us. This sermon today is going to be the fifth in a series that I'm doing here on the great and precious promises of God that can give us great hope in difficult times. I believe the sermon topics in this series are important, foundational topics that can give us great encouragement and maybe lead us, help us, and lead us to salvation. On the first Sunday in January, if you remember, we studied the topic, God's Promises the anchor of hope. That was the introduction to this series. In February, we studied the subject, God promises we can defeat the enemy. And you probably remember that that enemy is Satan. In March, we studied the subject, God promises our prayers can have power. And in that sermon, we studied several qualifiers that give our prayers power and make them acceptable in the sight of God. Last month, on the first Sunday in April, we studied the subject, God promises death is not the end. And in that sermon, we answered the question, what happens to us after we die? And that ought to be an all-important question for everyone. 
Otherwise, why are you here? So then that brings us to the sermon today, which I'm calling, God Promises We Have a Savior Who Intercedes for Us. So what does the word intercede mean? Well, a simple definition would be to intervene on behalf of another or to mediate. Now in the Bible, the word intercede is often used to mean the act of praying on behalf of others. You know, there are times in our lives when we all feel the need to have someone else pray for us. And if you haven't felt that need yet, I guarantee that at some point you will. There are times when we're faced with difficulties and hardships and problems that we don't feel that we can handle by ourselves. And those are the times when it's so encouraging to know that someone else cares enough to pray for us. So the Bible calls that kind of prayer intercession. And Bible writers encourage intercession all the way through its pages. Now, there's a difference in the Bible between prayers that are petitions and prayers that are intercessions. You know, a petition is a prayer that asks for something for the person who's doing the praying. It's a personal request. Lord, help me to be more patient today. That would be a petition. On the other hand, if I offer a prayer that asks God to do something for someone else or to intercede, that's an intercession. Lord, please bless a certain person. Help them to recover from their illness. That would be an intercession. You know, in the Bible, we have a number of cases of intercessory prayer being offered for others. And here are just a few examples. In Genesis 20, verse 17, Abraham prayed an intercessory prayer on behalf of the king whose name was Abimelech. And that verse says to us, So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Now that account in Genesis 20 is actually the first case of intercessory prayer that we have in the Bible. When someone prayed to God on behalf of someone else. In Job 42 verse 10, 
We read that Job interceded for his friends. That verse says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So you see, God is pleased when we offer intercessory prayers for others. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul said, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So today, as we said, we're going to study and think more about this, this great promise. We have a Savior who intercedes for us. Let that truth, let that promise sink into your hearts and minds. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is in heaven today praying for us. So where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible tell us about that promise and that truth? Isaiah chapter 53 is that amazing Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, the suffering servant. So look at Isaiah 53 verse 12. Here it is. That passage says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, even before Jesus came to this earth, it was determined by God that his mission would include bearing the sins of the world and being one who intercedes for the transgressors, the sinful. And that's us. That's us. Look at Romans 8.34. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So where is Jesus today, right now, today? Well, that verse says that he's at the right hand of God. And what is Jesus doing there? He's interceding for us. And how do we know that? Well, look at Hebrews 7, verse 25. That verse says, Therefore he, and that's Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
I want you to think hard about that last statement. He always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the thing that Jesus loves doing more than anything else is interceding for us. As the verse says, interceding for us is what he lives for. And so the Old Testament predicts that Jesus would become an intercessor And then the New Testament tells us that after he came to this earth and then returned to God's right hand, he is interceding there for us today. And the New Testament also gives us several examples of Jesus being an intercessor. So, let me ask you this question that probably has an an obvious answer. An easy answer. Why does Jesus need to intercede for us? Well, the simple and the obvious answer is because we need it. We need it. And why do we need it? And the answer is because as we live our lives, we're always facing the storms of life that we talked about back in that first sermon in this series. And we are constantly engaged in a spiritual battle with Satan and his forces that we studied about in that second sermon in this series. You know, there there are sometimes people today who may get the mistaken idea that when they decide to become a Christian, a member of God's family, the church. They may believe that they'll get a pass on the troubles and the trials and the tribulations of life and everything's going to be just rosy. But you know, that false expectation crashes quickly on the rocks of reality because the fact of the matter The fact of the matter is this. We live in a spiritual war zone all the time. Life in this world comes with storms. In John 16, 33, Jesus plainly assured us of that fact. In that passage he said, In the world, you will have tribulation. The storms will hit us. Just like they hit those first disciples of Jesus. Right now, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 14. And for the rest of the sermon, we're going to be in that chapter. We're going to study an episode in the lives of those very first followers of Jesus. Now, this episode happened just after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, very near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
So here's the beginning of the account that we're going to study today that Caleb read a few, a few minutes ago. It's Matthew 14, 22 through 24. Here it is again. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went upon the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. As you hopefully know, sometimes the storms of life hit us because of our own doing. We bring them on ourselves. You know, the storms in our lives are sometimes the result of our, our own bad decisions or maybe hanging out with the wrong crowd of people or giving in to temptations, or many other factors that are basically our fault. Now, when we are the cause of our own storms, our own trials and difficulties, we really can't blame anybody else but ourselves. Although people sometimes try to. But you know, that was not the case with these disciples in this account in Matthew 14. That was not the case. As we read, they were on that stormy sea because Jesus had told them to go there. Look at the text again, verse 22. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now, those disciples weren't being like, for example, Jonah, trying to run away and hide from God, like Jonah did. Jonah's actions deserved a storm, and he got one. Plus, he got a free ride in the belly of a great fish. But these disciples in this account in Matthew 14, they were not disobeying God. They were obeying what Jesus had told them to do. They were carrying out Jesus' directions. And yet they found themselves right in the middle of a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. You know, their experience was somewhat like, for example, that of missionaries today. Missionaries who may follow God's call and move themselves and their families overseas to another country at great sacrifice, great expense. But then later on, their financial support dries up. Or maybe Christian business people today. 
who tried to take the high road, the honest road in their business dealings. But then their efforts are undercut by dishonest competitors. Or maybe the honest, conscientious student in school who studies hard and works hard and prepares for exams. But then maybe he or she falls short on the exam, maybe compared to those who cheat. Or the faithful gospel preacher carrying out the commands in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 who preaches against sins that some people in the congregation are guilty of. And some of those people have money and influence. So they go to the elders and they complain to the elders who give in to those with money and influence. And to make a long story short, the end result is that the preacher has to find another place to preach. All of those cases that I mentioned and a whole lot of others that we could mention are much like the disciples who got in a boat to cross to the other side on the sea as Jesus had told them to do, but they sailed right into a great storm. So here's an important reality that we all have to face in life, every single one of us, young or old. Everybody get this. Storms come to the obedient. And the storms the obedient face often come with a hard punch. Some of you probably know that from experience. So do I. Look again at verse 24 in the text. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. You know, when we stand up for what's right in the sight of God, when we say and do what God would have us to be saying and doing, there will be those who oppose us. The winds will be contrary. And you know, sadly, sadly that can sometimes happen even in the church, the place where it shouldn't happen. We were able to visit and take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee on the Holy Land trip that I took. You know, the Sea of Galilee is actually more of a large lake that's about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide at its widest point. On the day that we were there, when I took this picture there on the screen, the sea was nice and calm. Nice, smooth, pleasant boat ride. Very enjoyable. 
But that sure wasn't true for those disciples in our text in Matthew 14. You know, the Sea of Galilee is still known today for its sudden, quick, fierce storms that come up. And here's why. Cool air surrounding the mountains along the sea mixes them with the warmer air that rises near the water, and that combination can cause severe storms to form. Here's a photo today of a boat that's caught in one of those storms. Today the remains of an ancient fishing boat have been found along the shore of the sea. And the remains of it do date from the time of Christ. The remains of that boat are 27 feet long, about 7 feet wide, and about 4 feet high. A boat like that would have carried up to about 15 people. Here's a model of what a boat like that probably looked like. So this is likely very similar to the disciples' boat that night. In John chapter 6, in John's account of this episode, he tells us this. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. So evening then became night, and the night became windy and stormy, with a roller coaster of waves on the sea. That trip across the northern part of the sea to Capernaum was just a few miles long. And it should have only taken maybe, maybe a couple of hours. But it turned into a much longer, harder ordeal. Both Matthew in chapter 14 and Mark in chapter 6 tell us that they were still battling the storm in the fourth watch of the night. Now, the fourth watch would have been from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they had been battling that storm for at least six hours or more. And you have to give them a lot of credit. They didn't turn around and go back to shore like they could have. They persisted in obedience. And they kept digging those oars into the sea over and over and over. Let's stop right here for just a moment and ask ourselves the question. When we have opposition or persecution in some way in our lives, when the storms come and the winds are contrary in our lives, how much and how often do we persist in obedience? So let's climb into the bowl with them. What do we see? We see exhausted, wet, rain-soaked men. What do their faces show? 
we see fear? Do we see doubt? Very likely. If we could read their minds, the question on their minds that we might hear is the question, where is Jesus when we need him? That question is not recorded in the gospel accounts, but surely it was on their minds. And you know, isn't that the question that we may sometimes ask today when the storms of trials and difficulties strike in the life of an obedient Christian? Where is Jesus when we need him? So where was Jesus that night when his disciples were called right in the middle of that great storm? Well, we already read the answer in Matthew 14, 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So where was Jesus? Jesus was praying. Jesus was interceding. You know, the gospel accounts don't tell us how, how widespread this storm was, but there is a good chance that Jesus may have been experiencing some of the same wind and rain upon the mountain that the disciples were dealing with on the sea. But either way, Jesus was praying. He had served all day, and he was praying through the night. And you know, maybe the storm and his disciples out in that storm, battling that storm, maybe that was a primary purpose and focus of his prayer that night. He certainly would have had knowledge of what was happening to them. And here is the wonderfully encouraging promise that, that ought to give us great hope. Whenever we find ourselves in the storms of life, we can know that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. As we said, to intercede means the act of praying on behalf of others or to mediate. So if Jesus is in heaven interceding for us, then that means that whatever need we're facing, we can know that Jesus is speaking on our behalf. He's calling out to the Heavenly Father for us. He's urging the Holy Spirit to help us. He's advocating for a special blessing to be sent our way. And because He lives to intercede for us, we should know that we're not facing our storms alone. When the disciple named Stephen was about to be stoned 
martyred for his faith in Acts chapter 7. The text in that chapter says that Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now I want you to notice in that passage that Jesus wasn't seated at the right hand of God as the New Testament often says that he is. No, at that moment Jesus had stood up. He was standing up for Stephen. And we should know and realize that Jesus stands up for us as well if we're faithful to him. So where is Jesus when we need him? He's in the presence of God and he's praying for us. In one of the most powerful moments in the whole Bible, Jesus had a very frank, honest conversation with Peter during his last meal with the disciples. They had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. And Jesus told them that one of them would betray him. And then they argued about who that might be. And you remember that Peter, Peter spoke up and Peter boldly declared that Others might betray him, but he never would. He said in Matthew 26, 33, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Peter said he was ready to go with Jesus to prison or to death. And then Jesus lowered the boom on Peter. In Luke 22, 34, he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. But Jesus knew that that was not the end of the story for Peter. And Jesus revealed this amazing fact. Here it is. He said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. What a comfort that must have been to Peter to know that although he was headed into a a great battle with Satan, Jesus had prayed for him and would continue to pray for him. Jesus prayed for Peter and Jesus stood up for Stephen. And he does the same for us. Now, let me ask you this question. 
Do you think that the prayers of Jesus get answered? Well, of course. So that leads us then to these questions. If Jesus was praying, then why did the great storm even happen? If Jesus stood up for Stephen, then why did Stephen die? If Jesus prayed for Peter, then why did Peter still deny Jesus? Wouldn't an interceding Jesus guarantee a storm-free, trouble-free, temptation-free life? Well, the answer to that question is a big yes. If that's what Jesus was praying for. But you see, that's not what Jesus prays for. What we need to remember is that a storm-free, trouble-free, temptation-free life is not what we're promised. At least not in this life. That's what we'll have in the next life, eternal life in heaven, that we talked about last month in the sermon, if we've been faithful and obedient. But Jesus plainly told us that in this life we will have trouble. You see, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where Satan is hard at work all the time, stirring doubt and fear and temptation. In this world and in this life, we can count on the storms of trial and trouble and temptation. But if we belong to Jesus and we follow him and we obey him, then we can also count on the presence and the prayers of Jesus in the midst of our troubles. And because Jesus lives to intercede for us, and because he stands up for us, and because he is a merciful high priest, we can know that we can find grace and help in our time of need in the storms of life that we encounter. In John 17, when Jesus prayed for his disciples, he prayed, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. When Jesus prays for us, he prays that we'll have wisdom and endurance in the midst of our trials. He prays that we'll stay faithful. He prays that we'll get back up if we fall. And he prays that we'll allow him to bring good out of the bad and the difficult things that we experience. 
You know, what Satan intends for evil, Jesus can use for good if we let him. If we let him. In John 16, 33, Jesus tells us, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Knowing that Jesus has overcome the world and knowing that he is praying for us, that ought to give us great encouragement. That ought to give us great hope. In the midst of our storms of trials and temptations, we can experience hope and help because we can know that Jesus is interceding for us. But you know, Jesus not only offers prayers for us, he also offers assistance. Let's go back to the account in Matthew 14. Because we're not done with it yet. The most important part is still to come. A few moments ago, we left the disciples digging those oars into the sea in the middle of the night, fighting that storm while Jesus was on the mountain praying. Matthew 14 says, beginning with verse 25, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and called him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. In the middle of that great storm, Jesus came walking to them. He turned the water, he turned the sea into his walkway. You know, in many ways, Jesus became the answer to his own prayers for them. And as we read, the disciples were afraid because they never expected to see Jesus walking on the waves of the sea. They thought he was a ghost. And then Peter boldly requested to join Jesus on the water, and Jesus granted his request. But unfortunately, Peter 
took his eyes off Jesus. And he began to focus on the wind and the waves. And then he began to sink. Peter's faith quickly turned into fear and doubt. As ours does if we take our eyes off Jesus. But fortunately, Peter knew that he could cry out to Jesus for help, and he did, and Jesus answered his cry. You see, Jesus is always willing to offer us mercy and grace in our time of need. Jesus did what he came to do in answer to his own prayers. Jesus helped Peter back into the boat and immediately the storm ceased. Now that wasn't a, a gradual ceasing over several minutes like happens today sometimes. It was immediate. And the disciples, for the very first time that's recorded in the Gospels, the disciples worshipped him, saying in Matthew 14, 33, Truly, you are the Son of God. What Jesus did for those disciples, he does for us. He intercedes and he intervenes. And what the disciples did for Jesus, we should do today. And that is to offer him our praise and our devotion. There is no one better for us to worship and follow and depend on than Jesus because he won't let us down. Jesus our Savior and Lord is our intercessor and mediator at God's right hand. But you know that is true only if we belong to him. And the New Testament plan for doing that is to hear the gospel of Christ preached or taught. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Secondly, we have to believe. We have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 8, 24 says, Therefore I said to you that if you will, that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Thirdly, we have to repent of our sins, which means to turn away from them. Luke in Acts 3, 19 says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Next, we must confess the name of Christ. 
In Romans 10, verse 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then we have to be immersed in the waters of baptism. In Acts 2.38, the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Paul in Galatians 3.27 wrote, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then finally, live faithfully after baptism. Revelation 2 verse 10 says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. If you're already a Christian today, but there is sin in your life that you need to confess today in a public way, or if you need the prayers, the intercessions of the church, then you can do that today. If you're subject to the invitation today, we invite you to come. As together we stand and sing.